go to the Lord and pray with me, would you please? Oh God, you are so good. And we know that the more we understand you better, the more we find ourselves becoming like you as our desire, Lord, is not just to know about you, but to know you better and to become more like you. And this is a very pertinent portion of scripture exactly for that. And so I just pray that you would cause us to hear you, to know you better and to want you more. And Lord, that today would be really, um, we'd be just so glad we came and that this time would be perfectly redeemed every second of it. Lord, you know that there's more than just the right word spoken. It's the right attitude in our own hearts to receive it. It's to be in the right place where we're humble enough to receive the correction you want to give each of us and the faith that it takes to receive the blessings you offer us in it. The willingness, Lord, to let you reframe our reality from the lies we've embraced from the world and to embrace the reality of who we are in you now. So, Lord, please let this time be perfect time. So let our hearts be in the right place to receive instruction, correction, and encouragement. Let our minds be in the right place to receive as well. Let me be in the right place, Lord, to receive everything you have to offer and that we would receive your clear instruction with a hunger to know you better and become more like you. So have this time now. Redeem every second in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd say today, as any, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures and test all things by it. Now, our context. A paralyzed man for 38 years sits hopelessly at the house of mercy in one of the five porches. The five porches lead us to be thinking of the five books of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law, if you will. Now, this man is waiting for the healing water that he knows he won't even be able to enter, even if it were to be in that state. And that's when Jesus comes. He comes to the man because the man couldn't come to him. Now, there's others Jesus would come to because they wouldn't come to him, but this man couldn't. He asks the man if he wants to be well, and he knows that'll cost him. It'll cost him his familiarity because he's familiar with this illness for 38 years. So the idea of walking away from a life of being a paralytic, walking away from a place where he doesn't have a real walk, well, he's got a lot of, he's had 38 years of that familiarity, of that weakness. But not just familiarity, he has to walk away from his identity because he's now been able to be called the lame man. And we do that. We find these things in ourselves, these reasons to never really achieve what we think we could have otherwise and it becomes our identity. But not just the familiarity and the identity in this thing, but the fact that he has this victim mindset. And it is something to walk away from because as long as I have this thing in my life, I can tell myself, I can ease myself every every night and say, well, I know Jesus promises abundant life and I know Jesus promises this and that and I know that life is so much more in Christ. And yet I know that I'm kind of the exception to the rule because I'm a, and we put our word there. And for Jesus to look at him and say, do you want to be well? This man has to realize that he's going to have to be able to assume responsibility to tell himself, no, he actually can get up and walk. But not just his familiarity and his identity and his victim mindset, but also the excuses to tell everyone else of why he can't take responsibility with his life. He's familiar for 38 years with whatever this is that's caused it. And it appears to have been sin that brought him there because Jesus would say afterwards, now sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. It seems to be the result of something. And now he has to get his changes familiarity for faith in an unknown. This is a world I'm not familiar with. Now, I don't really know what it's like to walk in that kind of freedom, to walk in that kind of abundant life. What a thing would that be? And that takes faith. He trades his identity for this thing that he's known for to an identity in Christ now, as he tells the religious leaders who accost him. It was the man who told me to... to Pick up my mat and walk. The guy who healed me is the one who told me to carry my mat. 
changes his victim mindset for this victory that he has in Christ. And he changes this excuses where he could tell everyone else, hey, you know, look, at, I know that you couldn't possibly judge me right now. You couldn't possibly say, hey, why aren't you doing something with your life? Because it would be cruel because you and I both know I'm a lame man. I've been a lame man for 38 years. And for you to look at me and tell me that, now look, at that could be something that happened in our past. That could be just the life that we're living now. But whatever it is, we just know that if you look at me and try to say, hey, why aren't you doing something real with your life? We actually have this excuse. And for Jesus to say, don't you really want to be well? I mean, now, granted, you have to leave these things behind, but we trade these excuses now for evangelism because now when God transforms us, we can't help but tell people because people stand up and notice. I mean, we were the person that was begging. We were the helpless person. We were the person other people had to bail out. We were the person other people had to put padding around for because we were the one in that kind of need. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is like, you realize that if you come, this isn't just standing up. This is for you to get up and carry that thing. That's a testimony now because that was the thing you had to lay on. And now you don't have to lay on that thing anymore. And you could stand up and you can walk and people are going to take notice. Why are you okay? Wait a minute. You're walking. That's weird. That thing that you've been laying on, you're no longer, you're carrying it instead of it carries you. That's weird. And it's going to turn you into an evangelist. Which, by the way, evangelist simply means good messenger. The problem is, is not everybody's going to be really happy and excited about the fact that Jesus transforms you like that. And I'll be honest, there are people who will take sort of a convoluted salvation, if you will. They will take kind of, Jesus, I don't want to go to hell, so go ahead and save me. But as far as this life is concerned, I'm still going to kind of live as the lame man. Because somewhere in all of that, and I'm not telling you, look, you have cancer and you just say, I believe in Jesus and you're not going to have cancer anymore. But what I am saying is that there's so much of life that Jesus offers us that we don't take because we've made some excuse that the enemy has convinced us is complete reality that was reality before we met him. And unfortunately, not everybody's excited about it. As Jesus invites him to get up and walk, he does so. And immediately the religious leaders swarm upon him because he's carrying his mat on a Sabbath And his response is, well, the guy who made me well told me to do this. And I could see this tone, and this is, forgive me for reading into it, but the tone's kind of like, well, look, this is what he's done for me. What have you done for me? I mean, this guy told me to get up and walk, and I got up and walked. If that guy told me to put on a tutu and and just start dancing around the room, I'd do it just because the guy transformed me like that. And, of course, the religious leaders are overlooking the miracle for his methodology. And that takes us to John 5, part 2, starting in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus. I mean, when they ask him who it was, he actually didn't know in the beginning, if you remember. But then Jesus finds him and says, hey, now that you've been made well, let's stay that way. Now that you've been made well, now that you've been transformed, now that you've been pulled out of the pit, out of the grave, and out of the toilet, don't go back. And at that point, he realizes who it is. And so when they ask, who is it? Now he says he's got a name to it, Yehoshua. Well, that's what Jesus of Nazareth. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus, that's the religious leaders, and they sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, please understand the reason for this is in Exodus 31, verses 14 and 15, in Exodus 35 too, breaking the Sabbath is a capital crime. God demands that you rest in him. And understand, ultimately, when we get to Hebrews chapter 4, what will be clear is the rest God really offers is Jesus. If you refuse the rest of Jesus, you finish from your works because Jesus has paid the price. Well, without it, there is, there's no life. So they want to kill him, and Jesus is going to respond to them. Jesus answered them, and he said, My father has been working for now, uh, until now, and, and I've been working. Aren't you glad that God doesn't take a day off for taking care of you? I mean, as far as anyone else, anyone else can take the day off, and I'm okay with that. But God doing so, that's a problem. In Psalm 121.4, it does say, Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. That's interesting, because it's a full-time chronic job for these people to be guardians of the Sabbath. It doesn't appear to me that they're taking the day off. And so Jesus says, Look it, my father's been working. So I am too. Like father, like son. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father. Notice it says, making himself 
equal with God. That's our context for the statements Jesus is going to make. And I remind you, chapter 5 is a beautiful chapter because we're going to be constantly reminded it's chapter 5. We did with the acronym 5. That was the familiarity, identity, victimization, and excuses. Now Jesus is going to make five statements that puts him in equality with the Father. That's what he's going to make between here and now. And then the rest of the chapter will be five witnesses that testify of that. And it tells us here, as they sought to kill him, because he's like, who in the world do you think you are? You put yourself on the same strata as the Father. And Jesus is going to say, let me show you five areas where that's completely inclusive. And then I have to look at myself and go, no, do these apply to me? Do they apply to you? Because scripturally, we're sons of God. Now, understand, we're not of God's species, although we're born again, but we are adopted by the Father. And it tells us, by the way, in Galatians 3.26, that we are all sons of God. Now, not all human beings, but everyone who's accepted Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a girl, you're like, well, wait a minute, how did I become a son? And might I say it's not an issue of sexism. I've said it before. It's an issue of permanence. A daughter is born into the family with the idea that she would ultimately marry into another person's family. That's a very Middle Eastern mindset. She's on loan for you. But a son, he's raised up in the family honor and in the family business. He's a permanent member of your family. Now, that is in no way to make a girl less important. It's just that you know sooner or later she's going to help progenate another person's family, or at least in the mindset. So for God to call all of us sons is not God actually being sexist, but the opposite. It's God looking and saying, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. When you accept Jesus Christ, you are a permanent member of the family. And Jesus now makes these statements, and this is what he says. Verse 19. Jesus answered and he said, Oh, most assuredly, I say to you that the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son does in like manner. And this is our first of the five things that make Jesus and the father equal, and that is his actions. Jesus and the whole, understand the reasoning Jesus is giving us here. Jesus says the Son of God would only do what the Father told him. He submits to the Father's will. He would not only do it what the Father told him, but he would only do it the way and when the Father told him to do it too. So he would only take what the Father gave, and he would only do what the Father commanded. Now, if the Father was against Jesus' healing on the Sabbath, the Father would not have commanded it. Jesus would not have done it. If the Father was not for it, since the only power Jesus was allowed, was allowing himself to have was what the Father, in essence, gave to him, well, then the Father wouldn't have given him the healing power in the first place. So he's like, look it. The Father's always been working. I've been working, and you need to know this. I don't do it unless the Father tells me to, and I'm doing this in obedience. On the Sabbath, now, I guarantee you, the guy that was made well wasn't upset that Jesus made a house call on the Sabbath. It wasn't like Jesus, you know, the guy looked and he goes, you know, this would have been so much cooler if you did it on a Sunday. But the bottom line is, let's just be honest, when you're not well, you'll take healing anytime. It doesn't matter what it is, a mild discomfort, and you're like, God, this very second is the best moment for you to do that. And I look at this and I realize, you really want to know what the Father is like? Just watch Jesus. Because Jesus does what the Father does. And I get this. Get that Jesus would say in John 8, 29, the Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. Could you imagine being able to say that even for a minute? But here's our problem. We're dealing with this, and please understand, we need to wash this out of us, not the world. I expect the world to have a very cockeyed view of the Lord and God himself, the Father. But, but understand, we get this idea that God's like this bipolar God. He's this nasty, irritated, passive-aggressive, smiting God of the Old Testament, usually old with a white beard. And then he's sort of the cuddly, gentle, lowly, forgiving Jesus of the New Testament. It's like somewhere down the line in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God got like an attitude adjustment. Like in the Old Testament, he was just like, do something wrong and I'm going to smite you. And then Jesus shows up in the New Testament. He's like, hey, everybody who wants a hug and understand Jesus is like, if I, I only do what the Father does. So that tells me that all of Jesus is healing, all of Jesus is raising the dead, all of Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders. That's all what the Father does. And what we're going to find is, is that the same God who has no problem smiting in the Old Testament, Jesus, when he shows up later, is going to have no problem doing the same. He's going to stand in judgment in the end of it all, in the resurrection, and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. God makes that really clear. So we need to make sure we're not presenting that because what, you've, what you tend to do is you tend to look for all of the judgments in the Old Testament and all of the salvation in the New, and we don't see the mercy and grace in the Old Testament, and we don't see the judgment in the New. 
And so what you have is, it's like, well, we don't want to read the Old Testament because it seems so serious. And, you know, like people actually get theirs. But in the New Testament, we just want to look at a Jesus who's cuddly, who never actually judges sin. And unfortunately, that's not true either. The balance of it is, is we're told to actually look on the goodness and severity of God. That's important. And it tells us, though the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not betting on either. And then I have to ask myself as we go to this in our first of them. The very first thing, obviously, is in our actions. Well, let me ask, what kind of God do I preach by my actions? If I'm a son, let's face it, the world out there is looking, and if they in any way know you as a Christian, they're going to try to decide that God is whoever you are. Have you, have you come to that conclusion? Now, we're aware of the fact we're not God. We're well aware of that fact. But when people are trying to decide what God is really like, they're going to watch you. What kind of actions, what kind of God do you preach by what you do? And I ask the same of myself. What kind of father do I present to them by my actions? Do I present a God that is taking care of me, that I feel safe, that I feel provided for, that I'm comfortable and restful in? Or do I find that I present a God that it's like I'm left kind of on my own and every once in a while I'm fearful that he's going to smite me? Because if if that's my actions... Well, then clearly, I can understand why people wouldn't want Jesus if that's who we are. That's our behavior. And yet Jesus would say to Thomas, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, buddy. Loose paraphrase. So our first thing in regards to that is, and and, and in each of these five areas, please understand, I want us to be able to go to the Lord and go, God, let my actions be ones that demonstrate a God that people would want. By the way, that never ever compromises who he is because we could try to give him a God that they might want, but not the God that God is. And I mean, we've been to places. It's been interesting over the last few years, we've been able to watch a few different church plants around us. And it's interesting because we've joked over the years and say, you really want to pack a place full of a full, you know, pack a church full of people. We'll give them free beer at the door. And it's amazing how many times I've actually seen that at a church plant where it's like you come in and the first thing you see is a table and it's like, nobody's carting anyone and everyone's popping up and there's the wine and the beer. And again, I'm not here to stand in condemnation of that, although you'll never see it here, but I do want to make it clear that somewhere down the line, it's like, what God are we presenting? Are we presenting a God that's totally cavalier about the very things that enslave us? Or are we presenting a God of freedom that demands and challenges us to walk away and go and sin no more, lest the worst thing happen to us? Verse 20. For the God loves, but it says, for the Father loves the Son. Interesting, by the way, the word love there is not that agape that we know of total selfless, but it's the word phileho, and I understand there is something different. And agape, you're going to be totally selfless to somebody you may get nothing in return for. I mean, real honest love, this agape love, is a love that you give to somebody without any demand laid upon them of their behavior in response to it. Boy, you realize it. That means that you love people the most whom you like the least, if you be honest. The people you really enjoy being around and you love hanging out with, are the hardest people to selflessly love because there's always going to be some selfish payoff in it. Doesn't Jesus say that when he talks about whom you actually lend to and whom you actually serve? When he says, man, when you lend to people, you know you're going to get something back from? He goes, man, even the Gentiles will do that. Unbelievers are more than happy to do that. But you give to someone and you serve someone you don't really expect to get anything back from because your payoff's actually in heaven there. He says, the father on the other hand, he he can't be totally selfless to Jesus because they're one. And there is no surrender in that sense because the two of them are completely perfect. And he says, he shows them all the things that he himself does. And he'll show them even greater works than these that you may marvel. The word for show, for what it's worth, diaknumi, is a word that's different than the sort of word that just simply means to present like phaneros, where it means appear, for instance. It's a word that speaks of more than just showing you something in regards to a literal object. It's more in the essence of revealing something that's more in attitude or in motivation. And I actually really love the fact that this is the term that Jesus uses. Because what he's saying is that the Father is doing more than just revealing to me, hey, this is what we're going to do. But he's like, here's my heart behind this. And I get the idea that in the second thing that Jesus shares with the Father is the same motivation or attitude. The same motive. And I realize 
that Jesus isn't just doing what the Father's doing, but he's doing it with the same reason. And understand, this is so important. I mean, there's a case in point, there's a shaper uh, in Hawaii. And he's a really, really gifted shaper. In other words, what he does is he makes surfboards. You know, he takes this thing and he kind of carves it and does all this stuff. And he, of course, he's got that mask on and all that. And a lot of these particular kind of crafts, they want to hand down to their children. And they have, and he has a very gifted son who does the same. He's very gifted at it. But the issue is, is that the father is one of those guys who's like way in love with the ocean, if that makes sense. We call him a soul surfer. He's the kind of guy he'd get out on any day. If it was flat, he'd just paddle around just to be on a board. And it's one thing when you can take somebody and give them the trade, the craft, if you will. But it's another thing to bequeath to your children the love that you have that drives you to do it in the first place. The same way that you can take a musician, for instance, who has a total love for communicating through that particular vein, for instance, and you can train somebody how to play technically and how to be able to do, to do, in essence, perform the same way you can perform. But if the heart isn't there, it's still going to be very different in the end. And you watch a lot of times what you see when something never really lasts past that first or second generation. The one thing that seldom actually gets handed off is the heart. And I watch that, to be honest, even in Calvary Chapel. I watch that a lot of times where what you see is all of a sudden somehow a good teacher gets equated with being a good pastor and understand a pastor's a shepherd and that would be like saying, come on, I'm a good dad because I feed my kids. There's so much more to being a dad than giving them food. But somewhere down the line, you kind of watch and you go, this is what a pastor does. Here's our six points and you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. And in essence, you've handed out all of the, the, technic, the technique of it, if you will. But unless you hand the heart and the motivation behind it, at best, they'll do it because they're told to do it, but they'll never do it with the same motivation, the, next, the same drive. But you hand out and say, look at these people are precious. Jesus died for these people. And because Jesus died for these people and his heart is in us, we should have that same love to die to give life to them as well. And there's something about carrying them upon your bosom that you can't just bequeath with a bunch of numbers and a bunch of sort of to-do things on a list. And the reason I say that is when Jesus is speaking here about what the father was revealing to the son, the father is revealing more than just son, do these things. Because he's already said that in the first statement. But in the second statement, he's going, you know, this is why we do these things. And there's something about the why that makes you want to do it too. If you have the same heart. And again, then I have to ask myself that question again. What kind of God do I preach with my attitude? with my motivations, with my priorities. When people look and see my heart, when they look and they see what it is that really catches my attention, which really squeezes my heart, which really kind of distracts me on a certain moment or on another moment captivates me because it's all, whether it's there in front of me or not. You know those things that we say are important, but we're multitasking in front of and those things we drop everything to actually give time for. In the end of it all, what really, what are those things? If you think about it in your own life, that people look at and go, you know, look at there are certain things that beg our time. Excuse <coughs> me, they require our time. I get that. Work is work. It's like they tell you be here at this time, and you can't say, well, there's something really important. But you know what it's like to go to work and do your thing, but be distracted because what's really important to you is actually taking up your time in your mind or your heart. And the reason I say that is, is that Jesus is, wants to make clear, if you get to watch Jesus speaking, if you get to watch me, you'll know more than what the Father does. You're going to actually see why he does it. And what you'll find out is that the priority of Jesus was never stuff, was never things. You know, we talk about, and it's amazing how this kingdom thing has been so manipulated over the last few years. Have you noticed that? Like the kingdom's like the buzzword within Christianity. We've got to build the kingdom. And, and it's crazy because it gets to this point where it's like, everyone's like, unless you evangelize, Jesus is just never going to show up, which is crazy according to scripture because it looks like Jesus is going to show up at a time when the church is, a, when the body of Christ is a carcass. I mean, that tells us something. On the other hand, I'm not encouraging you to just lay dead either to wait for Jesus to come, you know. But I get, but I get this idea here that you know, we, we move this thing and what happens is the Christianity becomes about the it, the kingdom thing. We've got to make sure that we are the kingdom. And hey, look at that stuff's true. 
But it's not the point. You can do all of that and move Jesus out of the whole thing because now we're like tactical. And the motivation now is entirely different. Versus, Jesus, can I just become like you and could I have your heart? It's what we sung. We're like, make me more like you because I know who you are and you're everything I want to be. There's nothing I want to be that isn't in you. And if my heart and my motivation correlated and were knit completely to the heart and love of Jesus, and they would see that, I'd have to look and watch what Jesus does. And I realize Jesus drops everything for a person. He drops a crowd for a person because a crowd can be something we get for ourselves, but an individual that needs service, Jesus is always seems to be available for. He's even healing people. That's like, it's, you know, it's like a guy's blind or he can't walk and then he can walk or he can see. And he's like, no, don't go tell everyone. Like, no one's going to notice, you know. And then, the, and then it tells us in Mark, why? Because it says then Jesus couldn't even walk among people. He had to go to deserted places because the crowd was thronging him. And Jesus didn't want a crowd thronging him. What he wanted was one-on-ones with people where he could see lives really change. And it wasn't about making sure everyone knew how many people were in his fan base. It wasn't about making sure that he could say, by the way, this week I had 5,000 followers. Because by next week, by the time we get to John chapter 6, which won't be next week, it'll be a few weeks, by the time we get there, you'll realize Jesus will be like, I just lost 6,000 followers. But the followers didn't mean that they were actually the people who were really in it. They were the people, in essence, who bellied up to the bar of Christ for what they wanted. And so hear me on this. There's the aspect of, hey, you watch Jesus do something, it's what the Father does. Which, by the way, notice everything Jesus did wasn't cuddly. When he made a whip out of cords and drove the money changers out of the, and the, the sellers out of the court of the Gentiles, I don't think that was cute and cuddly. When Jesus stood before the religious leaders and said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, that didn't sound very cute and cuddly. But on the other side of it, for any person in need that was genuinely willing <clears throat> to do more than just quickly drive through, he was there for him. But I also see his motivation in that. In Matthew chapter 8, when the man who is, according to Luke, by his testimony of it, is covered in leprosy, he doesn't look at Jesus and say, if you're able, you can make me clean. He says, if you're willing. You see, what the leper was looking for was, well, where's your heart in this, Jesus. And it's interesting because, of course, Jesus would lay his hand on the man, I'm sure a feeling he had not experienced for more than a decade, Look him straight in the face and say, I'm willing, be clean. And I realized, man, if my motivation and my attitude were like Christ, the kind of person that, the kind of God people would see, wouldn't be the party God, but better. 1 Timothy 2, 3, it tells us that God, our Savior, by verse 4, desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus would say in John 6, 39, that the will of the Father was that all that, he, that Jesus was given, he would lose none of them, but raise them up in the last day, which will come pertinent to our text. He tells us in Luke nineteen ten that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what he came to do. Why did Jesus do that? Because it's what the Father does. What was his motivation? To save. Because that's the motivation of the Father. The Father would say, Ezekiel 33.11, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and live. Turn from his way and live. So we have that of actions and we have that of attitude, if you will. Motivation in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to him, even so the Son of the Son gives life to whom he will. The third thing is in regards to ability or power. Jesus actually has been granted the power to do what the Father has called him to do. And I realize, <clears throat> in this case, it's going to be give life. We're going to see that even more here in a moment. Do I present myself as helpless or helpful? to the people around me. We know, let's be honest, we're all adults here. We know how to make ourselves unapproachable in a way that we seem like it's not our fault to somebody who needs us at a moment. We know how to not to answer the phone literally or figuratively. 
when that person is kind of around us. We know how to make ourselves busy. And let's face it, <clears throat> sometimes because it isn't really us that they want. You know, it's the person who's canvassing and they want to get you to sign up for whatever the thing was. And you know how to do whatever it is to keep them from approaching you in most cases. Or the person who's trying to hand you the thing and you're not sure if it's candy or soap, you know. And they're like, hey, you should try this. And you're like, how do I try this? You know, you lick it and it's wrong. What happens? You know, and, you know, and, you know, and we've, we've gone through different phases of that because, you know, these poor people, they're trying to do their job. They're basically telemarketers on a street. And, you know, and they've got their clipboard and they're kind of, you know, in the end of it all, they want you to sign up for a certain amount a month. And, you know, and, and I'm confessing to you, I'm like that too because... Look at if, if we have money to help people, we have avenues we know to give it to and different people we know to invest in that we are confident we know exactly where it's going to go. I can't say that for the case of a lot of these people and or, or any of them. But, you know, there are times where it's like, you know, okay, I mean, we've had times with Tay and I when we were younger where they would we know that if they would approach us, we'd start speaking our made up language because they would not approach us at that point. Or, I mean, this is my confession to you. I mean, in other words, I know how to avoid it is the point. And what Jesus is saying is, is that, look, there are people who actually, it isn't even that they're going to even approach us. We're just going to be aware of the fact. The thing about him calling them dead, if, they, if, they, if he gives life to them, you don't give life to somebody who's living. You give life to someone who's dead. So imagine, if it will, you had the ability to raise the dead. Well, at that point, it isn't like, well, if the dead come up to me, I'm going to go and help them. Well, at that point, they're zombies, and you really have a bigger issue to deal with. But it's, but it's let's face it, if they're dead, they're dead, which means you've got to have your court vision on because you've got to be looking for them. You can't just be like, well... I'll wait for them to initiate because truth be told, a dead person isn't going to initiate anything but stinking and you don't want to be a part of that. And the idea of that is, is that I look at people and there are times where I know how to make, on the, the wrong side of it, I know how to make myself unavailable, but on the right side of it, I also know how to make myself intuitively looking for the person for a need. And look, at God's not going to show me every need. And the reason is because I can't meet every need. But there are certain people that God's going to open my eyes to and say, I want you to take some time with that person. And at that time, I want to be like, okay, but I don't have the power or the ability. And you might say, I don't even know. What if they ask me a a scriptural question I can't answer or whatever? And it's like, look, God's like, I'll give you the power. I just want you to be available. And if you are available, I'll take care of it. And he goes, look, as the son raises, the father raises the dead. That's what the dad, that's what my dad does. I'm in the family business. Guess what I get to do? I get to raise the dead. And he goes, you really want to see something crazy? You ain't seen nothing yet. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 25, by the way, we'll be at the time of Jesus' resurrection. And this is what he's promising us later in this. It tells us, behold, it says that the veil of temple was torn from two, torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked. Rocks were split and graves were open. Many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of their graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, who wants to be around for that? What a cool moment that would be. You're at Passover and, you know, it's one of those family gatherings. And I don't know about you, but family gatherings usually often remind me of, you know, relatives that have come and gone and, they, you know, they've passed on. And you're looking and you're going, oh, I... I miss, you know, Grandpa Shemai, and all of a sudden he's like, hey, I heard you just mention my name, you know, and you're like, what? Wait a minute, you've been dead for 40 years. Yeah, well, Jesus is resurrected, and I just wanted to see, he raises people from the dead, and here we are. You know, now where did they go? It doesn't even say that they, you know, I mean, what happened to these guys? You ever think that through? These, these people came out of their graves. This is the original zombie, by the way, <clears throat> except they're actually really living, and, and they're real. And they came out, and then he appeared to people in the city. And then what? Then they all were like, well, we're going to go now. You know, the glory train's coming. It's going to go and pick us up. I, we don't know where it happened to them after that. Did they go back to their graves and just, all right, I'm done. I'm going to go back. We don't know. All we know is, is that Jesus resurrected. And the Father knows how to raise the dead. And he shows us that through Jesus. And then Jesus goes, oh, you want to see something cool? Watch this. And all these other people raise up too. Jesus wasn't the only person resurrected at his resurrection. Think that through. And we kind of look around and we're like, whoa, this was the weirdest day I've ever had. And I want people to see that power. But the thing is, God wants to show his power through you, but he wants you to be available so we can demonstrate it. And he says this in verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but he's committed all judgment to the Son. So understand Jesus is going to judge. That all should honor the Son 
just as they honor the Father. For he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The fourth thing, by the way, is honor. And this is the hardest one for me. Because obviously, I don't deserve the same honor as God. You don't deserve the same honor as God. But the crazy part is when I stand before the Father, I have the same honor as Jesus to the Father. And that's a wild thought. I actually stand in the name of Jesus. It's as if the Father sees Jesus when he looks at me. And I don't actually, I actually, to be honest, I can't wrap my head around that. With all the faith that God has given me, I can't wrap my head around the idea that he looks and sees the, the perfect son that Jesus is, who's never sinned, and he looks at me and sees that. I mean, if I could wrap my head around that, I, I have a feeling I wouldn't stay composed. The idea that God, re- I mean, I know it ideologically, that he's washed me clean of all this stuff. He's washed you clean. All that sin's gone. Man, what would it be like if I really embraced it like God told me to? Jesus would, well, John would tell us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, that whoever denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. Which tells me, by the way, that just because you're Jewish and you think, well, I can skirt around Jesus, and Jesus is going, nope, that isn't the way it's ever going to work. We know that because Jesus told us in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. You can't do it through Moses. You can't do it through anyone else. Jesus, uh, John would also tell us in 1 John 2, 23, that he acknowledges the Son as the Father also. So I look at this and I'm like, wow, okay. Honor. And the word honor, by the way, to me, it just means value, to pour great value into something. My children have fantastic honor to me. I don't honor them like I adulate them, like I worship them, like somehow they're in control. But as far as I'm concerned, they're two of the three most important women on the earth. Or girls, I guess, because one's 14, you can make that decision. She's not in the room, so I can call her a girl. And they have tremendous value. And it doesn't really matter whether they were biological or not. They're my children. And I, I tell you, it's really helped me to understand that the father can look at his his firstborn, his only begotten Jesus the Christ, and look at me, adopted into the family, born again into it, and not love one over the other. And that's, a, I mean, have you ever really wrapped your head around that? Jesus said that you would love me with the love that you had for me before time, before the world began. It's like, you've always loved me, Father. And I think, wow. To have that kind of love from the Father, because I do. How would that change me if I really wrapped my heart around that? He goes, Jesus is like, you need to recognize. In the end of it all, people are going to stand before Jesus. And Jesus will tell us, by the way, that we're going to judge angels, that we're going to stand before. Actually, we read that in 1 Corinthians. That uh, we'll be the one who judge angels and people. Now, how does that work? I'll tell you when it happens. By that point, you won't be asking me. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. He shall not come into judgment, which tells us Jesus isn't just looking and going, you're good enough, you're not good enough. It's whether you've believed in him or not. It's an easy testimony. Jesus knows whoever believes in him, he knows intimately and personally. Those who don't believe in him, he doesn't. So he'll be able to say, I never knew you. So this judgment Jesus has will be just simply sort of the father going, what about this one? What about this one? That's kind of the idea. Although I know the Father knows too. But if you were willing to put your trust in Christ, you'll never come into judgment, but pass from death to life, which tells us we all start out dead. The only difference is since Jesus has the power of life and death, well, the power of life, death already is here. If we're willing to trust him, he's willing to change us. Most assuredly, I say to you that the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Again, that's our reference to Matthew 27, but also in a greater way, we're going to see that in the end times. For the Father has life in himself, and so the Son has been granted to have life in himself. And here's our last of the five, and that is life. Jesus has life in himself like the Father has life in himself. Jesus and the Father share the same life in themselves. John 1 told us, in verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. By chapter 3, it tells us, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not even see life, for the wrath of God abides in him. 
abides, not is then poured on him. He's already living in it. He's already remaining in it. John 4, when Jesus speaks to the woman at the well, he says, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. This book's all been about life. And it's been about believing to get it. Believing in Jesus. But I want you to realize how this pertains to us. Because in the same way, when Jesus walked the earth, the only way that anyone was going to receive eternal life was through Jesus Christ. That will never change. But who brings that life now to others? We do. Do you realize we are the only people carrying eternal life on this planet? Muslims don't. Buddhists don't. Hindus don't. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm being blanket on it. Unless you're a Christian, it isn't happening because only Christians possess Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is life. It's the one thing of the, of the seven I am statements Jesus makes. Three of them pertain to life. Did you notice that I'm the bread of life? I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's pretty serious. He really wants you to know life is all about this. In him is life and that life is the light of men. And he says, Jesus is in me. Now, in the Father is life and in me is life. And then Jesus pours himself into us. And he goes, in you is life. The only life this world's going to get is in you now. You are the only people who bring that life to other people. And I wonder when, and I get why, <coughs> excuse me, the enemy is so busy trying to get us to see ourselves as some kind of spiritual bastard, some kind of orphan, some kind of useless, helpless, hopeless, abandoned individual. Because if that be the case, then the world doesn't see any life in us any different than them. And then he distracts us to go, this is what the world's chasing after. Don't you want that too? Where I found satisfaction in Christ, and I have this life abundant, and I'm like, Wow, this is everything, and, and, and the world's looking, and this is, and they're, they're like drinking salt water to cure their thirst, and I've got a fountain I'm trying to patch up because I want to blend in more. He goes, look, the son has life in himself because the father has life in himself and because I'm his son, and now you are. And the world out there isn't dying, it's already dead. And you're the only life that they're going to ever see. And I wonder, do I demonstrate that to people? Am I available enough to say, hey, life is found in Jesus. And I want you to have what I have. And I don't have to go. I don't, I don't have to expect them to go. So what do you have? I don't. I would expect them to see it. I expect them to see it in the way I respond to, to weirdness around me. And the way that I am on a weekday when, and I don't mean a weekday like Monday through you know Friday, but I mean in the sense of those days when I didn't get the sleep that I wanted or I'm not feeling as well as I would like. Or just the situations around me have just left me exhausted. And people watch on those moments. When whatever happens in life cuts me off at that moment when I was driving right, and all of a sudden at that moment they want to see if I'm going to yell at life, if I'm going to cuss at it. The moment that seems like it would be a setback and for them it would put them on a bridge and on the other hand I'm looking and going, you know what, this setback's just a setup. Because they got to see something different. And blending in isn't going to help for the dead. So Jesus says in verse 28, don't marvel at this. The hour is coming when those who are in the graves will hear his voice. Now we know that from the Matthew text, but even in a greater way. And there's this Hebrew term, and it means a little here and a lot there. And the idea is there's a hint of it. Like Hitler wasn't the Antichrist, but he sure was a great appetizer for it. <clears throat> the main course is going to make him look like a candy striper. What took place in Matthew 27 with those dead coming out of their graves is only a hint of this massive thing that we're going to see when it tells us this. The hour is coming when all who are in their graves who hear his voice will come forth, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Both are going to be resurrected, and they're both going to stand before Jesus. And as Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 and 25, he will separate them as a sheep separates his goats. I'm sorry, as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. He says, look, I, can, I myself, I can't do anything. I can do nothing, but as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but I seek the will of the Father who sent me. And this is the whole bottom line of it all, is that the Father has a passion. He has a desire, a pleasure, and it is you knowing him and them knowing him. That, and Jesus says, that's what consumes me. Everything else is secondary. That's what consumes me. And I want that to consume you. 
So here are these people going, who do you think you are? You make yourself equal with the Father. Is that really? I mean, <clears throat> you realize that's blasphemy. And Jesus says, now look it. Watch me and see if I do anything different than the Father would do. See my motivation and see if it's anything different than the Father would do. Check out the power that is demonstrated. And you tell me whether this power is smoke and mirrors or whether this is supernatural. Because in the end of it all, the honor and the reverence that is necessary for the Father is going to be given to me. And you're going to stand before me in judgment. And the life that you desperately need, I offer you. Notice the way that he brings it to that and doesn't start with that. Because in the end of it all, you know that in the Father is life. Well, you need to know that life is going to come to me. And let me show you how powerful that is. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to pay for your sins. I'm going to die there. And I'm going to resurrect. And when I resurrect, you'll see that death has no power because I have life. And so as we go to prayer, let me just ask you. When Colossians tells us that in him, the fullness of the Godhood dwells. That's Colossians 2.9, by the way. Understand this, Christian, as I need to hear this too. When Paul writes to the Colossians, a church he'd never planted, so he really didn't know them, although he does have quite a list of people he does know there in, in Colossians 4. He really wants to make sure that you don't get led astray by Christianese things that somehow seem to make it okay in the church but are not acceptable in the sight of God. And he goes, I don't want you led astray. Colossians 2.8, will you not be led astray or cheated? Is even its own clothing company because people chose C2.8 for that purpose because they don't want you to be led astray by the vain philosophies of man and the cunning craftiness of all these people who try to do this. And he goes, look at, get this through your head. Two simple statements. Number one, in Jesus is the fullness of God. There is nothing about God you're not going to find in Jesus. And there's nothing in Jesus you're not going to find in God. The second is, and you are complete in him. And these are the two areas the enemy's going to go after. Number one, you need Jesus. You know, oh, he's kind of different from God in this sense. He's nice, but the father's kind of angry. No, 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 no. He's the same in every character and personality. And But he says, but you need to get this through your head and heart. You are complete in him. Anyone who says you need Jesus and this, and then life will be cool, is lying to you. And we can do that in the church by saying you need to be married, you need to be a pastor, you need to be a this, you need to have, you need to speak in tongues, you need to make sure that you do this, and you make sure you've completed this course, and you make sure that you get the slaying, or the barking, or the levitating, or the holy oil, or the feathers, or whatever. And in the end of it all, it's like there's Jesus plus nothing. And what Paul is telling the Colossians is exactly what Jesus is saying here. And that is, look, you have a problem with me being on par with the Father. You might want to talk to the Father about it because in the end of it all, I'm going to stand there right beside him and you're going to go, oh, oops. And I want to, and we are seated in Christ. I just want to challenge you as we go to prayer. And first of all, if you receive this Jesus, not just the Jesus who's like the go-between, but God's own begotten son, the only one of his gene pool, monogenes. But also, as a Christian, if you are a Christian, I want to challenge you to you have a heart so that when people look at you, they would realize the God that is offering life to them. Because to be honest, you may be the only Bible they'll ever read. Pray with me, would you please? God, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for how you've gone before us in it. I want to thank you, Lord, for the fact that we have these five beautiful statements in chapter 5. Jesus, will you show us this equality with the Father? And in all ways you are equal. You tell us that. We read in Philippians 2 that you did not consider equality with God something with the Father to be robbery or in any way an injustice, but rather you are completely equal with the Father and yet chose to submit yourself under the Father for his will because you knew his will is your heart as well. And that is to redeem man, to seek and to save the least, the last, and the lost. God, I see that. But I confess to you, as your son, it's so easy sometimes to get caught up more in being just a guy and not the son. A son that also is, is responsible for the family business, to seek, serve, and save the least, last, and lost. I can get so distracted. 
Forgive me for that, would you please? Because I recognize that's not your heart. Me, my actions today and for the rest of my life represent a God who loves me and kind and wants him at no compromise of his holiness. May my motivations be to see men reconciled and women reconciled to you. May I be available for your power to be demonstrated so people can see life for all the power you exude is fundamentally to give life and life abundant. May I recognize that when I stand before you, Father, you give me the same honor as your son, even though he did all the work. He didn't just do all the heavy lifting. He did all the work. I want to thank you for that. I don't deserve that. That's grace. But also, Lord, fill my heart with the reality that this world needs life. And without that life, it's a dead world. And we as Christians are the only ones who possess that life to offer. Let us not take a back seat to a counterfeit, whatever that counterfeit would be, or a distraction, something that somehow still sits within the church but isn't life. Jesus, I know you don't play second fiddle to the Father. You will stand in judgment. You'll execute that. And yet you tell us that you didn't come to judge, but to save, that the rest of the world would know that you came to give life. It's our refusal of you that causes us to stand in judgment. You came to offer us life and life more abundant, so you tell us in John 10.10. So please today, ignite us with that, first of all, with the beauty of recognizing how we stand before you, and from that, ignite us in a sense to represent to a world that desperately needs. And open our eyes. We wouldn't wait for the dead to come, but we would be looking in whom you shall lead us to. We want to be available. And even at the sound of this voice, if there be any who have yet to say yes to Jesus and that gift, dying on the cross for their sins and resurrecting on the last, uh, on the third day, just as promised in Scripture, pray this prayer with me right now. Make that choice. Don't stand in judgment because you've refused. Jesus says, if you honor me, you honor the Father. If you don't, you don't. Jesus, I honor you. As a sinner, I come to you recognizing you are the payment for my sins. Nobody else offered that. Nobody else did it, just you. And when you died on the cross, you paid my sins in full. And just like scripture promised on the third day, you were raised again to show that there was a new life on the other side of that. So kill the old me, lay him to rest. That now I could be this new person in you. Jesus with you as my savior, but also as my Lord. Have me now as I give myself to you. In your name. If you agree, I ask you to say amen. God, you've heard us today. Now, send us out to represent. And I want to thank you, Lord. Seal this in our hearts and prepare us, Lord, for the people you are going to bring into our path this week and the people you're going to show us to step into theirs. Father, in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.